This is DMOU, Destination Marketing Organization University, the DMO Sectors Podcast, and I'm your host, Bill Geist. DMOU is where you hear the best and the brightest in the destination marketing space, sharing innovative and compelling stories to inspire you to take your destination and organization to the next level. And this is a special COVID-19 edition with our friend Brian Grimaldi, a lawyer with the national law firm of Greenberg Traurig, counseling corporate clients, trade associations, destination marketing organizations, and public-private partnerships nationwide, providing industry-specific, cost-effective outside counsel services, operational consulting, and advocacy. He draws from his nearly 15 years as Chief Operating Officer and General Counsel at NYC & Company, New York City's official marketing, tourism, and partnership organization, where he led the organization on legal business development, licensing, government relations, regulatory, and policy matters. Brian provided strategic counsel and advised on matters that advanced the organization's mission while growing and protecting its funding streams. He previously served as general counsel in the mayor's office of international affairs, where he provided legal counsel and support to city agencies and senior administration officials in dealings with the United Nations, foreign governments, diplomats, and federal agencies. And prior to joining the mayor's office, Brian practiced law in the private sector, where he represented several large investment firms and corporate clients engaged in security lending and fixed income finance transactions, SEC compliance issues, and management of corporate matters. Brian is on the board of the New Yorkers for Parks and a trustee of the Destination International Foundation. He previously served on the Destinations International Association Board, sitting on the organization's executive committee. He's also an appointee to the National Advisory Committee on Travel and Tourism Infrastructure, and he has previously served on the board of the Javits Convention Center Development Corporation. He is a graduate of the Benjamin N. Cardozo Law School, and he received his BA in economics from NYU and resides in Brooklyn with wife and son. Brian Grimaldi, welcome to DMOU. Bill, thank you for having me. Very much appreciate being here. Well, thank you for the offer. And while we all wish it was under better circumstances, we appreciate you taking time out of what I'm sure is an exceptionally busy schedule at this moment to help guide our listeners in the destination marketing space through what's coming next. So as you know, the the format here is, is three questions and a bonus round. I'm sure there'll be some follow-up questions at some point, but that's what we're going to do. And so question number one, we've gone from washing our hands to full-blown lockdown in some parts of the country and this world. While you have a long history in the destination marketing field, you're also an accomplished attorney. Thus, you see our world through a different lens. So beyond the obvious issues of not wanting to contract the virus and how government's response is devastating the economy, what concerns you most about the next few weeks that we're facing? You know, that's a very interesting question. And for me, the answer is very different today than it was just a month ago. You know, big eye opener, you know, we're a very big industry, but a really small family. Yeah. And everything that we do is so interrelated and dependent for us and others in different components. I mean, think about it. You have DMOs that have several funding sources. A lot of them now are at risk. You know, public funds as cities and states try to close budget gaps. Those with membership models, um, how do you collect membership money if the businesses uh, aren't open and don't have the ability to generate revenue. Yeah. You know, as we tighten our belts, how do you pay for things as usual? How do you pay for five of your staff to go to a particular trade show? You know, what types of scaling back are you doing? What effect is that having on your organization? But if you look further down the line, what effect are your decisions then having on others? Show organizers, decorators, uh, airlines, hotels, uh, the like. It's leverage on leverage. Um, so when people ask me what scares me these days, 
I'm not so much scared about the virus itself. You know, I think our health professionals, you know, at some point will get a handle on it. And I think we'll have things like treatments and vaccines. What really gets me is the economy and the damage that, you know, these governmental orders and, and shutdowns and stays in place are having on the economy. Because if you look at it from the perspective of other events that have happened in this arena, you have 9-11 and you have the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009. You know, post 9-11, when I worked for the city of New York, as soon as the event, immediate event was over, you had folks that had this sense of patriotic tourism. They wanted to travel to New York. They wanted to spend their disposable dollars. Uh, so we had an influx, and the tourism economy in the city of New York bounced back fairly quickly. I mean, I think it took us almost a year to get back to where we were before the event, but it did bounce back really quickly and really took off after that and were growing exponentially as, as the tourism economies in other cities and states did over the course of the last you know 20 years. Mm-hmm. Now you have this condition in every city, state, corner of the nation. And, you know, we're looking to D.C. for some relief on that. Uh, unclear as of today where those various bills are going to land. You know, there will be some relief. But, you know, my concern is I don't think everybody can be made whole. The whole 9-11 thing was, I mean, we knew hotels were impacted. We knew restaurants were being impacted. You know, we knew that tourism was taking a hit. But as you said, it was a momentary hit. This one is going to go on so long. And there are going to be so many people that are even, if there is an all clear, that will be scared for months to travel, even domestically. It isn't just the hotels and the restaurants, but it's the people who serve hotels and restaurants and the people who serve those businesses that serve hotels and restaurants. I was talking with a friend the other day who posted an op-ed piece and he says, think about the butcher who supplies the meat to all the hotels in the convention center that was fully stocked up. And all that meat's going to go to waste. Now, I'm sure he'll find a way to help the community with it, but there's no income there for him. Terry has a a friend who is a professional photographer. All of her weddings have been postponed. Right. But then on that same time, the ingenuity of the American business person, she's doing drive-by shootings of people on their porch with a camera. (laughs) I mean, I think it's brilliant. And she says, during this time, don't you want to have a picture of you and your family as you were sheltering in place? She goes, I'll be out at the curb. I'll shoot the picture. I'll send them to you. But but that's never going to make her whole either. And so this ripple that you're talking about is, is, I think, is going to be devastating. I know it is, but I think the American people are resilient. Yeah. And, you know, our industry, I think, probably better than any other. Um, It's made up of the people and the people make it special. So, you know, the uniqueness of this industry and the relationships I think give it a leg forward. Plus, from an economic perspective, when we come out of the tunnel and the machine starts to really rev up again, the taxes generated here, the economic activity will be probably quicker, as it has in the past two instances, to recover faster than other industries. And I think people really believe that. I certainly do. You know, most DMOs have been selflessly focusing on assisting the businesses in their communities, attending to their professional staff over the past couple of weeks. It's been just fascinating and and heartwarming to watch in this crisis how DMOs have pivoted and are really becoming 
as Jack Johnson says, I mean, we're seeing it in action. They are a shared community value. What are the most critical things in your mind that DMOs need to do in the next couple of weeks and months? I mean, we've we've seen them pivot and do what they need to do outwardly and within staff, but what do we need to focus on next? No, I think that's that's fair. I, th- I think that breaks down into two or three different components. You know, I think there are things that DMOs can do to protect themselves and give themselves a roadmap to recovery. And then I think there are aspects of the makeup of DMOs today and their importance to their local communities where an executive director or a CEO and president is really a part of the community in a way that their community leaders such that they can offer help they can work through issues you know that we saw we've seen leadership this week from a number of dmo ceos that have pushed business to local restaurants even the ones who were doing takeout only to keep that little sector of the economy and have people do their little part working with your local emergency managers and your mayor's office or your council to understand what you can affect to be in the communication chain to help have that conversation in concentric circles, you know, locally, regionally, statewide, nationally, and then eventually internationally, as we start to come out of the tunnel. In terms of the what you can do now in the protection realm, you know, start thinking a little bit about sort of the non-personnel cost-cutting belt tightening. What expenses can you push down toward the end of the year? You don't have to fund your 401k now, for example. You can wait until November or December to do that. What other issues can you defer? Understand your losses. Going back to sort of the best practices that we've talked about over the last couple of days in terms of understanding and evaluating your individual facts and circumstances, monitoring the situation in real time. You know, the situation is fluid, which means the facts and circumstances change quickly, and they often do. Understanding what your contracts say and understand the the implications of your decisions. Review, think, pause before you act. Keeping detailed records of the scope of your business interruption and detailing the factors of impossibility. That's going to become really important as the SBA program out of D.C. gets off the ground. They're talking about two different ways to qualify, economic injury and need. Um, So understanding how to present that that in a process, file a claim, get a case officer assigned. It's dynamic. As the losses mount, you add to the pile. As your situation changes and you may get relief in other areas, the claim gets adjusted over time. Understand your insurance coverages to the extent you have any. I would imagine very few folks in our world have business interruption insurance. Some may, um, but it's time to pull out that policy and have a conversation with your broker. Understand and consider whether you have alternative means to perform, whether things could be postponed as opposed to outright cancellation as a result of, say, a force majeure event. Consider business solutions to your legal problems. You know, everybody's in the same boat. Coming to a mutual agreement with a counterpart is better than taking an adversarial position at some point later down the road. I mean, certainly there are going to be places where adversarial positions are unavoidable, but I'm of the mindset that to the extent they can be avoided, they should because everybody gets a better result. So you mentioned force majeure. That's a term that we're hearing more and more uh, as more and more conventions cancel and more, more events cancel. 
uh, or at least postponed. And forgive me for being a poli-sci guy who didn't go to law school, but when I'm looking at a contract and I get down to that part, I figure, ah, just it's, it's boilerplate, you know, skip over, move on. Explain force majeure for the lay and what we should be doing uh, in reviewing our contracts today. Sure. So generally speaking, force majeure is a legal concept where a contractual provision excuses a party's performance because of its obligations under the contract when in certain circumstances beyond the control of either party, making performance inadvisable, illegal, impractical, or impossible. And one of the things that is unique about this situation is pretty much in every state now, you have a situation where a governor has issued an executive order, some more strict than others, but in the major cities, there are these uh, shelter-in-place orders prohibiting large gatherings. So meetings, events could not possibly happen. That covers the illegal piece or impossible piece. You know, facts and circumstances are unique, but um, for the most part, I think most jurisdictions, those, those conditions exist. The clause is generally looked at narrowly, but you don't necessarily have to have a clause in your contract to claim a type of force majeure. There are concepts in the law called frustration of purpose. Uh, if the original intent of the contract um, is literally frustrated and cannot be performed, you, you have uh, the ability to terminate in some instances. Uh, the concept of impossibility or impracticability, no more than 10 people can gather in a room. Your wedding of 200 people, your conference of 2,000 people, physically impossible to have. So generally speaking in public contracts, there are provisions that allow for termination for convenience. So irrespective of a force majeure, generally speaking, cities and states can, as a matter of just the way the procurement was done to institute the contract, pull back on it at any time for any reason, unless that right has been negotiated away by the parties, um, which is very rare. The question then becomes, to what benefit? If the performance is suspended, what is the benefit to the city? What is the damage to the DMO? I think you have to take a close, hard look at that. You know, case law is involved in certain states. There are these concepts that governments, even though they have those types of provisions, aren't allowed to act in an arbitrary and capricious manner. And to the extent that they do, they are often a defense for those types of cancellations so that those are avenues that are available to folks. Of course, if your relationship with your city has devolved to that point, I think you have bigger problems than bickering over whether or not the clause is, is valid. Exactly. So when we emerge on the other side of this, what's our path forward? Where do you see us going when we get through, as you say, this tunnel? You know, for me, it's marketing, marketing, marketing. Any business school case will tell you that when the chips are down, push the accelerator so that when you come out of the tunnel, you have the ability to pick up where you left off, grow as quickly as possible, and remain top of mind. Uh, travel is the great connector. People are not going to stop traveling. Business conferences are going to continue. You know, meetings mean business, and they mean it. It's true. So understanding that you're indispensable to your local government, hotel taxes that are generated, pay for other things in the economy, the industry is still one of the largest employers in the country. I mean, one in nine or one in 10 folks here are employed within the travel and tourism industry. And these types of revenues and brand exposure 
can not only help with, but speed to a recovery. I think it's unique. It's unique to this industry. As you said, room taxes, hospitality taxes are often used for other things than destination marketing. And in the right scenarios, they're probably used for things like the bond on the convention center or some other downtown development or, or whatever it may be, the sports complex. When push comes to shove and the money gets tight, suggestions for how DMOs can try to, to work through this when first on call is going to be the convention center bonds and we're kind of at the back of the line. What should we be doing today? You know, I think understanding what's available to you in terms of programmatic elements and funding at different levels, city, state, and federal. You know, as we're talking now, the federal government is working on the COVID-3 package, which we believe is going to have some relief from destination marketing organizations and convention visitors bureaus in it. One of the other things are the SBA loan program, which at the moment allows for up to $2 million of relief uh, for folks to qualify under those programs. And uh, understanding a little bit about where the money flows and how it flows, who is getting funded, what private foundation money might be available to you. In the state of New York, Bloomberg Philanthropies put together a group of like-minded philanthropic funders that came up with a $75 million pool of grant that they're offering to small local not-for-profit and cultural organizations to help fill the gap until the state and the federal programs get up and running. This is going to allow people to keep their people, pay their bills, fund their operations. We do expect that some of the employment relief that will come out of D.C. this week and maybe next might allow people to keep folks on payroll for a longer period of time. I know it's a, it's a difficult conversation to ever have to have when you're talking about reductions in force. Uh, and we look to that guidance from the federal government to be able to keep people on payroll. Okay. Well, Brian, thank you so much for the insight. Uh, I think a lot of food for thought, a lot of thought starters. For those of us in the destination marketing space that never thought that we would have to go to these lengths to do a job that we love so much. I was listening to a uh, one of our talk radio stations here in Madison, and uh, Destination Madison's Deb Archer was uh, a guest over the weekend. And the host said, a month ago, Deb had the greatest job in town. Today, she has the hardest job in town. <laughs> and it, it is so true. So time for the bonus round question. As I said at the outset of the conversation, you were an accomplished attorney in corporate America. How the hell did you end up in destination marketing? You know, it's interesting. I call it the happy accident. <laughs> I did uh, mergers and acquisitions and some securities financing work, and I got put on the UBS Swiss Bank merger. And I was working in Stanford, Connecticut by day, commuting up from midtown Manhattan. And I went to the partner and I said, hi, this commute's killing me. I'm going to rent an apartment in midtown Manhattan. I'm going to stay up there Monday to Friday. I'm going to come home on the weekends. And it's great. He said, but, you know, if you transfer me back to a file in Midtown next week, I'm not asking you to pay for the lease, but I want you to backstop me and get me out of it because I don't want to pay two rents. And uh, he said no to me. And he said no in such a way that it just didn't sit well. And, right. you know, back then you physically looked in a newspaper and you wrote letters and put stamps on them and put them in a mailbox. I did that. Uh, so I started to look around and I had five or six employment applications that I had filed, and I answered one nondescript ad in the law journal to work for the mayor of the city of New York. 
That's the Council for International Affairs. And I interviewed for it and I got it and stayed there for about a year and a half and then 9-11 happened. And because the person that I was working so closely with had direct access to the mayor, I had direct access to the mayor. All job descriptions went out the window and I worked directly for the mayor at the time for a period of four or five months. Election happens, change in power, Mike Bloomberg comes in, I meet him and a guy named Dan Doctoroff. Dan was the father of the New York City Olympic bid for 2012, a really dynamic guy. Uh, met with him, he really just lit a fire under me and I needed to stay involved. So I, I did some legal work for them as in-house lawyer at City Hall. I worked through a number of issues that came up over the course of time, did some large deals for things like airports and bus stop shelter franchises with a company called Samusa, which is now JC Decoe. Then the city realized in post 9-11 world that they never really quite cracked the code on things like marketing and sponsorship and licensing. The Bloomberg administration formed a company called the Marketing Development Corporation that was a marketing and advertising firm whose sole mission in life was to wrestle to the ground the sponsorship and the marketing assets for the city of New York, figure out how to commercialize them, and then do sponsorship and licensing and marketing deals. And I was the first general counsel of that office. Two years into it, we started to realize that there were so many synergies with this small organization called NYC and Company that a merger might be the right way to go. Mm. And Mayor Mike, knowing that I had um, some merger experience, I ended up on the project to merge the organizations. I was the lawyer that did the corporate transaction. So I did the contract and the bylaws and convinced both boards to merge. Merger was done, tapped him on the shoulder, and I said, I'm going back to the private sector. This was great. And they grabbed me by the back of the collar and said, where do you think you're going? Uh, we need you to stay and help with this. <laughs> what do you want? And I said, well, I'd love to be chief operating officer and general counsel. And they waved the magic wand and the role of chief operating officer and general counsel at NYC and Company was born. And I happily lived there for 12 years in that role until I left this past summer to join Greenberg Traurig uh, to be outside counsel to destinations and organizations around the country. What a great story. I love that. There was literally no saying no to the guy. But uh, hey, it, best decision I ever made. Yeah. And we couldn't be more pleased that you're uh, still on our side. In fact, even more on our side today as outside counsel. So Brian, thank you for all you do for our industry, for joining us on DMOU and helping us through this dark time with some great ideas. And here's hoping your guidance helps many of us through this crisis. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You bet. That's it for this special COVID-19 edition of DMOU which is a service of DMO Pros. That's where you're gonna find more on our services to the DMO world, plus links to the Z News, our book destination leadership, videos, blogs, and the biggest DMO job board on the planet, as well as links to earlier episodes from a happier time of DMOU. That's DMOPros with a Z.com. Executive producer of DMOU is Terry White, and this is a production of DMO Pros. I'm your host, Bill Geist. Until next time. <laughs>